Just want to remind everybody, as we've announced for the last couple of weeks, that we are going to be um, turning our attention to a, another ser- a different sermon series coming later on uh, this summer in August. We're going to be um, looking at the question, your questions, and ask and answering because you asked. So some people have already um, gone online and submitted questions. So um, you can go right on our website, right on um, our eBulletin, kingshapel.net slash bulletin. And you can um, there let us know what it is that you'd like us to, uh, to, to talk about and what the topics are going to be for that summer series. They can be anything from theological, doctrinal, cultural, you know, maybe even church government, church polity, etc., etc. So you tell us what you'd like to hear and we're going to um, answer those questions to the best of our ability. And of course, always turning to the Word of God um, to find those answers. Um, so I've dismissed the children. So as we've already read from the scripture this morning, we're in Luke chapter 8. Um, we're going to be in verses 40 through 56. Uh, my, for some reason, my uh, phone wasn't working correctly, so you're going to have to probably help me out with making sure those slides um, per, you know, present themselves um, as I'm preaching. But Luke chapter 8, 50, 40 through 56. If you remember from last week, Jesus was in an area known as the Decapolis, which means ten cities. So he's gone across the Galilee to this, this area. It does something pretty amazing while he's there. Pretty astounding. A man who's possessed by demons, he goes by the name of Legion, rushes to him as soon as he jumps off the boat or gets out of the boat, comes right up to Jesus' feet. And just before this, Jesus had been on the seas with his disciples, and they were moving across the, Gal- the, the Sea of Galilee, and he had revealed to them, and to us as well as we read in the scriptures, his power and authority over nature by calming this hurricane that threatened to overtake their boat and, uh, and, help, and make them perish. But in the word, Jesus silences the wind and the waves, and then he goes and does the same thing when he gets ashore with, with this demoniac text says that this man lived like a wild animal, running around naked in, the, in a graveyard. And there was no way to even restrain him from, his, uh, f- from the way he was acting, from harming himself, from harming other people. Because anything they tried didn't work. They tried shackling him, they tried chaining him, and he had supernatural strength, and he would break the chains and still make his way around terrorizing community. But Jesus calms this man's soul, rids him of these parasitic demons that tormented him and terrorized the community, and he frees this man from these, these demons, returns him to his right mind, he even puts some clothes on him as well, so he's not shameful in his nakedness. And meanwhile, after that, Jesus then allows these demons to go into this livestock of pigs that then plunge themselves into the lake, and they all drown, so there's a, a floating pig carcasses as far as the eye could see. Can you imagine that? And although these, you see this man is with Jesus, and he had, for the longest time, didn't, he wasn't living uh, in a sane way. And all these people that were living around him were, were fearful for the way that he was acting. Now these townspeople, instead of seeing what was happening right before their eyes and seeing how this man had been transformed from his state to, to a state of level-headedness and calmness, they were all instead concerned about their bottom line. All they saw that was... That was uh, Drowning in the lake were these dollar signs. That's all that mattered to them. And so they, they tell Jesus, you gotta, you got to go. So they, they tell him to leave. And so Jesus then proceeds to go back on the other side of the lake. But this man, before that, we see this man has been changed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. He's been healed spiritually, been healed physically, mentally, emotionally. 
from all this violence and turmoil that was in his heart that would have eventually would have led to his demise. He's overwhelmed by Jesus' kindness. And he's magnetized by Jesus now. He doesn't want to leave his side. He asks Jesus, can I come with you? But Jesus has a, a better mission, a, a different trajectory for this man's life. He tells him in verse 39, return home declare how much God has done for you. And we see that he does exactly that. And he's probably joyful, more joyful than he's ever been in his entire life as he goes and tells the entire city, it says, about what Jesus has done for him. And it was a Gentile city, though. It wasn't a Jewish city. So this gives us a little picture of the, of the broad nature of the mission of God. That it's a mission not just to the Jews, but it's also to the Gentiles. And it means that it comes to us today as well. Thousands of years later in Glenmont, New York. And this, this story actually happened. It literally happened. It's a true story of what Jesus has done. That He has the power to heal and to deliver us from the enemy, Satan, and from our own sins. But it's not just an isolated incident. The story gets better from here as we turn to our passage this morning. We get, we get actually two miracles for the price of one in this text. And just like last Sunday, we'll see that Jesus' miraculous saving power touches the physical, but it goes beyond that. It moves below the, the surface of the skin to heal with the human heart, to heal the human part, heart. And specifically in this text, we'll learn from this passage that Jesus heals chronic disease and defies death attesting to his divine power and sovereign grace to save sinners who trust in him. Put another way, only Jesus can inject hope into desperate situations of life. And most importantly, the unavoidable judgment of, of God's wrath on our sins. He secures us from God's wrath. So then we're left with a decision about who Jesus is. Will we acknowledge that he is the son of the most high God? As the demons themselves actually acknowledged. That he has the power over sin, Satan, and even something as cold, dark, and final as death? Will we willingly bow to him and before him and cling to him as our only hope in life and in death? Will we believe that he is the only one who can truly and completely change the human heart and as a result can change the trajectory of our lives? When Jesus, what we'll learn here is that when Jesus shows up, he does intend to interrupt our lives and to intercept the course of our lives for our good. As commentator I read this week said, R. Kent Hughes points out that despair is, the, is commonly the prelude of grace. And we'll see that in these two miracles this morning. The two miracles in test are manifestations of God's grace to the hurting and they are a call to us today to place our faith and trust in Jesus. So we're going to look at three points this morning because all things should be done decently in order and I'll do it to the best of my ability. Um, we'll look first at the welcome in verses 40 through 42. Then we'll look at the interruption. And then lastly, we'll look at a resurrection. So first we'll look at verses 40 through 42. Let's turn attention to those two verses specifically. Jesus, again, like I said, he's back from a short-term mission trip across the sea to Gerasenes. And now he's most likely in Capernaum, which was a, 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 a town right on the shore. 
And there's no storm on the sea this time as he comes back, but he is welcomed by the Category 5 crowd when he steps off the boat. It's a complete opposite way in which he was uh, welcomed this time. He was thrown out of the towns before. Now he's actually being welcomed back by another crowd. And Luke says in verse 42 that the crowd's pressing in on him, that they're suffocating him, they're, they're crushing him, they're choking, the, almost essentially choking the oxygen from around Jesus because they, they want to hear more about what he has to say. They want to see more of his miraculous works, these signs and wonders. And among the crowd, there's one person of all these people that capture his attention more than any others. It's this ruler of the synagogue whose name is Jairus. And he approaches Jesus, comes to his feet. How did he, of all the people there, get the, the advantage? We don't really know for sure. Maybe he beat the crowd. Maybe he was the first one in line. Or, or maybe because of his prestigious standing in the, in the, in the society, in the community, they just kind of parted, parted ways, let him go in front of everybody else. We don't really know. But what we do know is that he comes and humbles himself before Jesus Christ. And as a rule of the synagogue, he wasn't a priest, but he was a lay leader who was entrusted by the, the elders of the, of the community of that place in that synagogue to oversee all that happened in the synagogue. So that would, he would oversee the teaching, so the Sabbath teaching, including scheduling rabbis to be there to teach, maintain the scrolls of the scripture, make sure they were in good order, uh, caring for the building, arranging the order of worship, collecting donations, distributing to them those who are in need. So he was like an administrator, kind of like an executive pastor, someone I can relate to, right? He's an executive pastor, kind of. And his role is essentially is essential to the life of this community while he's there. Because it's a, this is a central hub, a place of worship and gathering for the community where the synagogue was. But as we'll see, even his standing in the community didn't exclude him from suffering. Whatever gained him access to Jesus, which we would all agree, hopefully, that it was God's providence that led him there. But we do know he came in desperation. His only daughter, 12 years old, was dying. And we don't really know his opinion of Jesus before he came up to him, before that point. We read in other places that, to put it mildly, Jesus was not really well-liked by many of the religious community or religious establishment, including these synagogue leaders. But this man, at this time, was in such desperation that he placed all his pride aside, knelt before Jesus on behalf of his daughter that he loved. And it just goes to show, I mean, we could probably all relate that we'll do anything, right, for those that we love that are hurting. We've all felt at times that everything is, when we're in a situation where it's hopelessly out of our control and we have to acknowledge that we are dependent upon something, on someone, to turn things around or, or they're, we're going to go off the rails. And hopefully in those times we find that Jesus is that someone that we can turn to. And that's what this man discovered. His daughter's death was imminent and nothing mattered to him more at this time than taking care of his daughter and this emergency evaporated any concerns he had about himself, his own reputation, or his, his self-consciousness. He, he drops himself before Jesus. 
He loved his daughter. Now he appears that he finally found someone. Someone that could heal her from her disease, whatever it might be. And now the crowd is even that much more excited because they're hearing this testimony of this man and his daughter and, and they know Jesus is going to be turning to help, help this, this little girl, to help heal this little girl. I'm sure Jairus was, was pretty frustrated though if you think about it. Now with, with the crowd all that more excited now are impeding Jesus' way. They're, they're, they're slowing him down from being able to get to his girl on time because every, every moment that passes by she's getting closer and closer to her death. Now we look at the interruption, verses 43 through 48. It's not just a crowd, though, we see that's, that's slowing Jesus' approach. Jesus now is actually interrupted. Again, he's, he's distracted. Before he can make it to the house, a woman is here and has something that she wants from Jesus as well. We get a little bit of her backstory uh, before she actually enters the scene. We hear in verse 43, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Although she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So this, this woman, she's been suffering 12 years from bleeding disorder. We don't know exactly what her diagnosis was, but we can surmise that it was some gynecological condition. Not to get too much detail, but maybe a uterine hemorrhage that was now had devastated her life for 12 years, and she was in the state of constant discomfort, of pain, of fatigue, embarrassment. And she was marginalized from society because of her condition. According to law, women were considered ceremonial, ceremonially unclean during their menstruation period. But bleeding that lasted longer would only lengthen time for of her impurity so she she couldn't gather her, her situation was that she could not be a part a normal member of society her situation was chronic had lasted 12 years the same amount of time that jairus's daughter had been alive and for this woman there was really no end in sight for her situation she was trapped in her in her body she was held captive by this condition think about it everything that she wore, everything she touched, she sat on, she lied on, that came into contact with her, was considered unclean. And worse, if she, didn't, she couldn't touch any, anybody, think of this, she couldn't hug anybody, couldn't kiss anybody, embrace anybody, she couldn't even accidentally nudge somebody because they would then be deemed unclean and would have to go through ceremonial cleansing. Remember the leper from chapter 5? He was considered by all society standards, as being isolated and, and ostracized and, and, and really dead to society. And this woman really, in a sense, was, was no different. Notice in this, there's no mention of a family, there's no mention of a husband or, or children or even friends. Probably kept her from be, becoming a mother or of even getting married. The only people she had interaction with were doctors. Some of the earliest manuscripts we have, you'll see maybe a little note in your text here, doesn't have the last part of verse 43, where it says, although she spent her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. But we do know that, that Mark does include this detail in, in his account. And he actually makes it appear as it's that much more dire than even Luke 
accounts for it here. He says, she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had and was not better, but rather grew worse. The doctors had been all but had been all been unsuccessful in trying to treat her disease and heal her with no money back guarantee, and they had only making her situation worse. So imagine all the, the false hope after trying a new remedy, one after another after another, only increasing her hopelessness and her desperation because it didn't work. Maybe the next one will work. Maybe the next one will work. Maybe she even likely dabbed in some superstitions. Some of them that were used at the time were, were uh, using uh, wine uh, mixed with rubber, with rubber aluminum. Some, while someone chants, arise from thy flux. I don't even know what that, what that means, but somehow that was supposed to rid her of her disease. Or boiling wine with crocuses or with Persian onions. The list can go on and on and on. But think about it. She's exhausted all of her options She's broke on top of it all. She's used all of her money. And her disease now has, has actually come to define who she is. It was, a, it was her identity now, right? Her identity was forged. It was linked forever to this bloody defect that she had. And we can get caught up in that way of thinking too, can't we? That, that mindset. We define ourselves by our situations, by our circumstances, by our past by how people have treated us, by our hurts. Maybe it makes us feel inferior or, or unwanted or unloved. And, and that can even, it can lead us in a couple different directions, right? It can lead us to depression, wallowing in shame or despair. Or it can drive us to recreate ourselves, to remake ourselves in a different way. Something that we want to be, someone who we want to be, that makes us feel happy but in the end, this, this new identity doesn't work, does it? It doesn't quite fit, doesn't quite align with the way God has made us or designed us to be, to be His children, to worship Him in spirit and truth, to have a relationship with Him. But the good news is that this poor woman's circumstances and her identity is about to be changed forever with a single powerful encounter with Jesus Christ. And that's her mission. Her mission is, is to find Jesus. Her mission is, is to come and, and to just touch the corner of his robe, which she believes is going to heal her, and then she can slip away unnoticed. Why did she decide about touching his robe? Well, at the time, it was commonly believed that uh, if you could touch the robe of, of a holy person, that it had some kind of a power. And so that's what she was thinking, and, and this would all the more play into her desire to get in, to get out unnoticed. Or maybe it was that she was afraid of touching Jesus himself as well. Or because, again, if she touched anybody, that person would become unclean. Whatever the reason is, we know she takes this great risk to come around a crowd of people and to navigate this crowd that's pressing in on Jesus. But she somehow manages to slip in. She manages to navigate herself into a place where she's situated right behind Jesus, it says, and then she reaches out and this woman for over a decade who had been on the fringes of society without hope, everything that was keeping her away from society all vanishes. 
by touching the fringe of Jesus' robe. Her blood flow stops, and Jesus' power flows out of him into her, floods her, and changes her in an instant. She was hoping to be avoid being noticed, but she is noticed, it says here. Look at verse 45. She's not noticed by the crowd. She's noticed by Jesus. He says, who is it that touched me? Seems an odd question, right? Especially to Peter. He says, Master, the crowds are, are surrounding you and pressing you. Like, duh, obviously you're being touched by lots of different people. But there's a different sort of touch that he felt. One that, that actually caused Jesus to respond by releasing his power, his divine healing power, proceeds from him. The, the power that healed her was, was not released by accident. We should, we should put that right up front so that we all recognize it. It wasn't some impersonal, unintentional force that resulted simply by touching Jesus' garment, sort of like the electrical shock you get when you touch an outlet, you put your finger in an outlet. If it was, then all the people who were touching Jesus, knocking into him, hitting him, they, they would have all been jolted too, right? They would have all had some kind of healing moment as well. But we see here that it was, it was Jesus' divine power under control that he intentionally and graciously directed toward this woman that brings about the healing. And he does that in response, as we see, to her faith in him. And what's ironic about this miracle is that it happens in public, but nobody notices it. Right? It happens in public, and yet Jesus' disciples and the crowd were completely ignorant that anything had just happened, let alone that a, a woman's life had been completely changed in just an instant. But Jesus didn't want to remain a secret. He wanted people to know about what had happened. For this woman, first and foremost, and then also for the crowd that was around her, and even for us this morning. Who was it that touched me? He said. No doubt this woman, again, she wanted to slip away. She wanted to get away unnoticed. But by asking this question, Jesus was drawing her out of her hiding. Not to make a spectacle of her, he was inviting her into an encounter with him, a face-to-face -face encounter, so that he, she would experience more than just his, his healing power, his physical healing power. He wanted her to experience, listen, he wanted her to experience his love. He wanted to invite her into relationship with him and the joy that comes also with knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus, and then making him known to the others that were around. The text says she comes trembling before him. Was it because she was afraid of Jesus rebuking her, that he would take away his healing because she didn't ask him, didn't come before him humbly? Or was it because she was afraid of the crowds? The crowds were going to be upset because they were interrupting this would-be miracle to happen where Jesus was on his way to heal this, this uh, Jairus' daughter? Well, it could have been that, partially, but I think those fears all took a back seat, really, when, when you think about the awe that she had of the glory of Jesus Christ after having experienced his healing power. When she looked into the eyes of Jesus, to the eyes of her Savior, she couldn't keep in the good news. And in that moment, by asking her, who has it touched me, Jesus was essentially holding a microphone out to her at that moment. Holding out a microphone 
and letting, so that others can hear about what had just happened. She gives a powerful testimony of the life-changing power of Jesus. And she does what naturally, she, does it, she did it naturally. She, in a way that Jesus had to tell the demoniac to go and tell others, she just knew instinctively, I need to tell people about what just had happened to me. She shared a very personal, intimate, and even at, at one point a shameful act of her life, and she's sharing it publicly before people. And that it was Jesus Christ who was the one who healed her brokenness. Maybe you need to hear this this morning. I know I needed to hear this this week as I was studying. If you trusted Christ, you have a testimony of the powerful, life-changing, transforming work that He can do and only He can do. Don't let anyone tell you that what you have to say is not important, let alone yourself. Talk yourself out of that feeling because we're all too often led by our, our feelings, aren't we? In our culture especially. The truth is that if you have been changed by Christ, you are now a new creation. There's nothing more astounding than a miraculous work of being recreated by the God of the universe. Amen? Amen. Listen to these, these, these verses from the Apostle Paul. He says to this letter in Titus. This describes every follower of Jesus. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works we have done in our righteousness, but according to his, his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, that is, being declared righteous, by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We all have our own brand of foolishness and methods of, of pleasure-seeking that lead to envy, and hatred of others, even hatred of ourselves at times. Mine was pharisaical self-righteousness. I looked down on other people for their sins, and ironically, I envied their apparent freedom to sin as they wanted to. I was incredibly self-conscious, not about my outward appearance necessarily, but about my reputation. I liked, I liked believing that sin was out there. Sin was something that could be avoided. I wanted to appear as though I had everything all together. Meanwhile, I, I worked really hard to somehow obligate God into, into giving me His favor. His favor that at the same time, I also, strangely enough, I, I feared God that He would see me as I really was. I was a fraud. And that at any given time, He, he would come and He would drop the hammer on me at any moment. Talk about fear, talk about insecurity. Add to that vanity and the materialism that I had in my heart, you have a mess of a person. That's who I was. And I feel, finally, though, I realized that I had no control over the sinful passions that were raging within my heart. And I surrendered to Jesus by faith. And on that day, He transformed me. He, he gave me a new identity. Not because I earned it, but out of His great mercy, His grace, and His love. 
And still today, I'm far from perfect. I struggle with sin, as we all do, but I know that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed unto me. I have to remind myself of that daily. I have confidence in Christ that he has freed me from the oppression of sin, and that by the power of the Spirit, now within me, we all have, that have turned and trusted in Christ, I am becoming more and more like Jesus day by day. And you can say the same thing if Christ has come and saved you. Our stories won't match perfectly. They'll be a little bit different because we're all different. But the common denominator is always the gospel. Right? Our testimonies are wed to the gospel. The good news of what Christ has done. Because we don't boast in ourselves, right? We boast in what Jesus has done. And that he is a good God. He is a powerful God. And if you've never shared your testimony or you haven't shared it in a while, I, I encourage you to do that. In community groups, if you're not part of a community group, join a community group. That's a place where we can talk with one another, we can encourage one another, we can listen to one another, we can build our confidence, not in ourselves, we can build our confidence in Christ. So don't let the enemy rob you out of sharing the impact of the gospel in your life. People need to hear about Jesus, right? Jesus commends this woman's faith, however small it was at the the moment, He grants her a new identity. He calls her daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, as we see in verse 48. He gives us kind of like this benediction, sending her out in peace. How long do you think it must have been for her to have been called a daughter? Felt the warmth of family. He wants her to know how precious she is to him, and that she has now a new identity. She's his precious daughter of the King of Kings. She was once marginalized, a marginalized woman. By all accounts, she was unwanted and untouchable, and now she has all the blessings that come with a familial relationship with God, the God of the universe. It's the only time anybody in the Gospels is called daughter, that Jesus calls her a daughter. She's no longer de- de- defined by her disease, but by her relationship to Jesus, and that changes everything, including now her membership in the community of faith, God's family, the church. With this healing, she's, she's finally able to re-enter society and gather with God's people to worship. She's no longer isolated. And when we realize who we are, that we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, adopted into God's family, and that we have access to God, and we are now objects of His delight, and we have hope of eternity with Him, how can we go on living the way that we used to live, right? In a word, everything changes because we have peace with God. The losing battle against God, that we had raged against him in our rebellion, is now over. He's now overwhelmed us with his love. And so our only response is that we willingly, humbly, hang up our weapons of warfare against him. And now instead we raise our hands to worship him. Peace with God that's initiated by God himself on behalf of his enemies. He does this by inconceivable grace and kindness. Romans 5, chapter, one, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God means acceptance in the family of God. 
That's the peace that this woman received. And that's what we are offered today in Jesus Christ. And now we turn to our, our last point, the resurrection. The text says that while Jesus is still speaking, he's uttering this last syllable of his benediction to this woman. He's interrupted again. A messenger comes from Jairus' house, announcing that his daughter has died. Imagine. Imagine his reaction. His worst fear had come true. He had been holding out hope for this long time. And now it was dashed. She had died. His mind must have been filled with all kinds of what-ifs, frustration, maybe even anger, grief, of course. This message that came <clears throat> from this messenger was one of defeat, an admission of defeat. By all human standards, defeat, they were, and they were right. Death is final. It's the one invincible, indestructible enemy of life. But Jesus, in that moment, while he's still uttering the last word to the woman, quickly turns his attention to Jairus and reassures him. Reassures him, even though he's caught up in his fear and his grief, he's, forgetting what he's, he's forgotten what he had just seen a second ago. A woman's faith in Jesus had healed her. A woman, in that time, that was counter. Cultural. Think about it. Women at that, at the, in those days were treated as inferiors, but Jesus used her to speak volumes to the crowd and now to Jairus as well. This woman who was unable to attend worship at the synagogue or the temple for over a decade has become a model of faith to this religious leader. God uses all of us to communicate His love and His grace. Amen? Even from the most unlikely of sources. He has a way of humbling us so that we will repent of our sins and we would trust Him. And He mercifully, He meets us where we are. And this is at the point in the story where the, where the two of these narratives, these stories intersect together. Where the faith, faith of one, this woman, is commended while faith is encouraged for this other person, Jairus. Despite the miracle that he had just seen, Jairus is like all of us. He cares and he has worries and, and they have blinded him to this message that he needed to hear so desperately. And Jesus, though, loves this man enough to tell him bluntly, verse 50, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Jesus shifts Jairus' focus from his fear to his hope. Who, and his hope is Jesus. He encourages him to place his faith and trust in him. He's not forgotten. Jesus has not forgotten Jairus' daughter. He hasn't even been delayed. Jesus was on his own timetable. And although Jairus didn't and couldn't understand that at the time, it was true. To borrow from Gandalf, Jesus is never late or early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. But Jairus will soon learn that Jesus is in sovereign control over life and death. After encouraging Jairus to trust him, Jesus unhurriedly travels with him the entire length of his house. Now we know Jesus didn't have to do that. 
Earlier in chapter 7, Jesus heals a man, a centurion's servant, from a far distance. But in this circumstance, Jesus lovingly chooses to accompany him all the way to his house to go with him to see this child. And when Jesus arrives, there's exactly what he expects to see, what all of us would expect. There's sorrow, there's grief, an atmosphere of weeping. Not a dry eye in the place. It says, verse 52, all were weeping and mourning for her because they knew that she was dead. I don't know if there's anything more heart-wrenching than when a parent loses a child. In those moments, it underscores the brokenness of this world. Something's not right. In that day, it was not uncommon for people to hire professional mourners that would cry loudly until the deceased was, was buried. In the midst of this weeping and wailing, though, Jesus makes yet another apparently absurd statement. Like when he asked, who touched him? He says, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. Something that would have come across as unfeeling, maybe even offensive. These people knew what death looked like. They knew what it was. They were scientific people. Don't let think that they weren't. They recognized what death was for what it was. And that death is a permanent separation from the ones we love. But to the spiritually attuned, right? Jesus is not being naive. He's making a claim about himself in this statement. To him, death is just as temporary as sleep. Before he displays what he can do, he first is again underscoring who he is. He is God in the flesh who has authority over life and death. Only someone who can resurrect corpses, corpses from the dead back to life has the audacity to speak of death as being just like sleep. And that's what he's claiming, right? And then he proves it. He, he directs everyone to leave the house. The only ones that can go in are the, the parents of this young girl and his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle they'll come to be known as. First time that they're referred to, this, 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 this the collective in this uh, account, in Luke's account. But he, he takes this, woman, this little girl by the hand, which anybody else touching this girl would have made them immediately ceremonial unclean as well. But to Jesus it does not. He takes her by the hand and with his voice he calls out into the invisible abyss of death and he reaches the ears of this girl's spirit when he says, child arise. In that moment her spirit returns to her body and she wakes up. And the first thing she sees is Jesus' face. And he makes sure that she gets a snack. Why not, right? <laughs> Maybe he knew that she was hungry. She hadn't been, been able to eat for many days because she was suffering. She was dying. Or maybe he was making a point. A point that God not only is the one who gives life, it's the, he's also the one who sustains life. And what's the most fundamental way that we sustain life but then by eating food? Whatever the reason is, Jesus reveals his care for this girl in this moment. The chapter ends with Jesus telling the parents not to spread the news to anybody. Why? Well, it was, in, it was inevitable, inevitably it was going to get out. It's not that he was going to keep the, the news from, from being released. So it could have been that he was just temporarily keeping it under wraps so 
um, that this girl wouldn't be made a spectacle of. She wouldn't be made a science project out of, trying to figure out what happened. Maybe it was for logistical reasons. He just wanted to temporarily delay the crowds from forming again. Remember, he had already told them to, to move away, and this would give him some opportunity to slip out and, and move on to another village, to the next place where he was supposed to go as he was being led by the Spirit. We don't know. We simply just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But, I, but what I do want to mention is important to point out here, and only Luke's account has it, this, this, this detail. In verse 55, he gives a definition of what death is. He says death is separation from the body and the spirit. Separation we feel when the loved one dies is also that person's separation of their body and their spirit. That teaches us that God created us both as, as spiritual and physical beings. That makes us unique, makes us different from, from any other creature, even different from the angels who are spiritual but don't have bodily form. We're the only species that reflect the image and likeness of God. We, we retain that dignity and value as reflectors of God's image to the world. And it was never God's intention for the reflection to become refraction or, or for life to be snuffed out. And we instinctively know that death is not natural, it's cruel. It doesn't belong, it shouldn't be a part of the human ex experience. And that's why we grieve so hard. That's why we mourn for so long a time. No matter what our culture or other religions might teach, death is the product of sin. It's a curse that we have all inherited by Adam's sin, first in the garden, but also by the rebellion within our own hearts against God. Death, death is the enemy, enemy that we've been fighting against since the fall. But no matter how hard we try, we can't defeat death. We will all succumb to death. Even this little girl that Jesus rose from the dead is going to go on to die again. And there's no cure of death. There's no cure for death. Or, or maybe there is. Our passage this morning reveals that Jesus alone has authority over death. And that although it appears that death is, has the upper hand, that death is the final arbiter, it's not. Jesus has authority over death. Not just this girl's death. It wasn't a one-time trick. This miracle was a demonstration of Jesus' lordship. And incredibly, listen to this part. Not only his demonstration of his lordship, of his power, but his willingness to rescue sinners from death, which is worse than simply the cessation of life. Death is not just the end of life. For the unrepentant, it's punishment in hell. But for followers of Jesus, we are freed from the wrath of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. We all view death we should all view death, those who know Jesus, through the lens of God's sovereignty and His eternity. We recognize the absurdity, right? It's absurd to embrace an ideology of meaningless existence. That's secularism. We reject that. And instead, with the Spirit's help, we resist wasting our lives also by running after pleasures, transient pleasures, that can't offer lasting joy that our souls are looking for. Instead, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we serve Him.
Not perfectly, but faithfully. And even pain and suffering have a place and purpose in our lives. We're not promised a life without pain or struggle, but we are promised that Jesus is with us in the midst of it. He will see us through. We are secure in His love. He will hold me fast. Right? And these light momentary afflictions, that's what... That's not me. That, that's the Word of God saying that our, our struggles are light momentary afflictions. They're meant by our loving God to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We also resist the temptation to believe that death is the end because we believe by faith that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. It's synonymous with being presence of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we know that, death has lost its sting. That doesn't mean we're Stoics. It's right and good that we should grieve. We should mourn when, when the, our loved ones die. We grieve when we're separated from them. But the paralyzing fear of death is gone because we know that Jesus awaits us on the other side along with the promise of a glorified body that will, will free us from all injury and pain and exhaustion and even death. Because Jesus is the resurrector. And why can we be sure of this? Because Jesus himself came to die. And he, when he did that, he purchased our eternal life with his blood. The only begotten Son of God left his throne in heaven. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. And on the darkest day of his life, the darkest day in all of history, Jesus was abandoned by everyone, including his disciples. Let's not kid ourselves. We would have done the same thing if we were in their shoes. And at the hands of sinners, he suffered immense pain, humiliation on the cross, and blood flowed, poured from his head, his hands, and his feet, and from the open wounds of the Roman lashings. And the only begotten Son of God willingly and obediently took our place on the cross and bore our sins. Isaiah 53 Three through six, written hundreds of years before it actually happened, says this. And he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one for men who hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone, in our own way, in all different directions. And the Lord has laid on him the, the iniquity, the sin of all of us. From the cross, which we just read about, Jesus entered death. And then as one, as no one ever before him, he returned to life on Resurrection Sunday. He conquered our sin, the enemy who would condemn us, named Satan, and removed the sting of death because there's no longer a corridor now into the unquenchable fires of hell. Instead, he extends out his hands of grace to those who will turn from sin and trust in him. And that means we can have peace with God. Forgiveness of sins. Entrance into the family of God. Eternal life that begins now. And a promise of a purified body to match. 
a purified body that's well equipped to stand in the new heavens and the new earth when we will be before and with forever our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can be assured of this truth, this reality, through faith. Jairus could not raise his daughter. This woman couldn't remedy her disease. And we can't save ourselves. All we can do is place our faith, however small, however timid, in Jesus Christ who never disappoints. He's done all the work Will we believe? Will you trust? Will you maybe need to return? Will you return to the one who can heal your brokenness? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks volumes about ourselves, about who we really are, but also speaks volumes about who you are. And that you have not delayed in bringing us mercy and grace when we needed it most. You have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. And with Him, with Him is the healing, the brokenness that we all need. And so, Father, I just pray that if there's anyone here who has not turned to Jesus, Lord, turn, I pray that you would work in their heart. Turn them to you. Those of, those of us who have wandered, Father, from your grace, Lord, I pray you would restore our faith to a, to a greater, a stronger sense of trusting in the confidence that we can have in you. We love you. We thank you that you have not left us alone, not left us to squirm in our sin, but to raise us to new life. A life that begins now it's, and will continue for eternity because of what you have done. We love you. We turn our attention to you now as we continue to worship you in our song, in our response. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.